an obscure answer like that, or uh, you'll get typical answers like a, like a football player or a police officer, maybe a firefighter. Uh, another common one is a doctor. I want to be a doctor when I grow up. Now, being a doctor is something a lot of people aspire to. Now we see how important doctors' lives are on television shows. Uh, good ones like ER, uh, House, or maybe Grey's Anatomy. We see how doctors are some of the world's most prolific problem solvers. Right? They get to fix things. They get to fix people and help people. People want to be doctors. It, it doesn't hurt that doctors make often quite a bit of money. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor from Wales, England. Lloyd-Jones got his MD from London University, and he became a doctor in the year 1919. Now, his first big position was the assistant to a man named Lord Horder. You don't call people Lord here. Uh, and why, why is that a big deal, assistant to Lord Horder? Well, Lord Horder was the physician to the King of England at the time, King George V. So Lloyd-Jones was a prolific doctor. And it was during his early years as a doctor where the church he attended got a new minister. And the minister preached the gospel week in and week out. In his early years as a doctor, Lloyd-Jones also noticed something else. He noticed that Lord Horder's other, um, other patients would be brought in because of their lifestyles. And so Lord Horder would, would, would fix them up and he would send them back out and they'd often just fall right back into the same lifestyle that brought them there in the first place. So it's these two trends in Lloyd-Jones' early career as a doctor uh, that when he became a Christian in 1925, the Lord used those things to bring a sense in him that he should leave his medical career and become a pastor. He knew the importance of ministering to people's physical and medical needs, but he saw the deeper importance of ministering to people's hearts. And so Lloyd-Jones came from a family of grocers. His, his dad owned a grocery store. And so you can imagine his parents weren't exactly that thrilled when he made this choice. After he's gone through medical school, after he's been a successful doctor to kind of give it up and become a pastor who really would be kind of poor. But history would prove that this was, in fact, the Lord's direction. Through the preaching ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones, thousands of people came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God even used Lloyd-Jones's medical mind for him to preach in a certain way. He called it preaching with logic on fire. He would preach like a doctor. He'd preach from like symptoms to, to reasons to a, a cure. And Lloyd-Jones's influence, his legacy, it's still felt today. I mean, you could, you could read his sermons. You can even listen to his sermons, uh, especially his sermons on Romans are, are phenomenal. His legacy is felt today in the publication he founded, The Banner of Truth. You can read historic, great Christian books that he discovered again that are still published for us and preserved for us today. So we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen many things about its central character, Jesus of Nazareth. Actually, that's probably the main objective of Mark's Gospel. He wants to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Well, we've seen several things about who Jesus is. 
We've seen Jesus' relation to the Father and the Spirit. We'll see more of that today. We've seen Jesus' compassion. He ministers to the outcasts of society, like, like a leper or a paralytic or tax collectors. We've seen Jesus' authority. That's been a major theme so far. His authority or his, the right for him to call people not to follow even the Torah, but to call people to follow him. We've seen Jesus' authority over spiritual darkness, his authority to cast out demons. We've seen Jesus' authority over disease, to heal people with with just a touch. We've seen Jesus' authority to know and to reveal God's true intention behind the law. So what's happened in the Gospel of Mark, as as people are beginning to see how great Jesus is, his fame just goes viral. He spreads throughout all that land of Galilee. He can't be hidden. And the phenomenon is kind of captured in chapter 2, verse 12 of Mark. And that people see him healing the paralytic and they, and they say, we've never seen anything like this. And we'll see this pattern continue today. Jesus' fame just keeps on spreading. So if you, if you think of that, it, with someone with this kind of credentials, the credentials of Jesus with how, what he can do and how great that he is, one would think you would just keep on pursuing those things. Right? It's like Lloyd-Jones. One would think a great doctor like Lloyd-Jones would continue in a medical career. That would make sense to us. But it's not just the pattern of Jesus' authority that we see. We also see that a pattern of Jesus doing the unexpected. Jesus is supposed to be the Messiah. And yet he, do, he does things that people didn't think the Messiah would do. And this unexpected stuff that Jesus does, it often incurs opposition to him. And he's got people plotting to kill him already at the beginning of his ministry. But the, the unexpected things that he does is, is in line with the Father's will. And it's even what will lead him to accomplish our salvation. So today, again, we encounter this Jesus who's able to draw hordes and hordes of people as they hear the one who has the kind of authority to heal, the kind of authority to cast out demons, as they hear of one that they've never heard before. They think the sky is the limit for this man. Unlimited potential. But again, we see Jesus doing the unexpected. He draws in hordes and hordes of people, but he decides to start off with and to put his stock in 12 all-around unimpressive individuals. That's what we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 7 and 19. You could find it printed in the insert of your bulletin, or you turn in the Pew Bible to page uh, 838. Mark 3, 7 and 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Udemia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. 
for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boranergus, that is, the sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, whenever we're approaching God's word, there are certain questions that we can ask that will help us get at the main point of any passage we're reading. Now, a couple of those questions for us today that would be relevant for us is, what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? And what do we learn about, how, about ourselves from this passage and how we should respond? So we think of those questions, and, and using those questions, we can discern what's the main point of this passage here. You see it printed in your bulletin. Jesus is great and powerful and kind and divine, and he calls us ordinary, sinful, and different to follow him. It's pretty simple. Jesus is great. We're not. He calls us to follow him. It's sort of a, a meat and potatoes kind of main point. It may seem a little bit underwhelming. It may seem like these two paragraphs, they just seem sort of re- repetitious, even superfluous, kind of meaningless. Like, why are these even here? Friends, don't despise the simple. If we believe the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture, even working through them, working through their particular personalities, working through their circumstances to ensure everything written down was what he wanted them to write down. Now, if we believe that, that this book is inspired, then there is no wasted section There's no wasted paragraph. There's no wasted word. These two paragraphs here are preserved. They're written for for us, for our instruction, even if that means they present something that's familiar to us. So as we explore Mark chapter 3, verses 7 and 19, my prayer is not only that we would walk away with more information about Jesus and how we follow him, Now, my my prayer is that we would grow in a deeper love for him, a deeper captivation of him. Because sitting under God's word, it's it's more than an information download. We want our hearts to be changed. So remember the main point, right? You kind of see that there are two parts to it. Something about Jesus, something about us. That's going to inform the divisions uh, of this sermon. The first question we'll ask is, who is the one we follow? We'll we'll look at that first paragraph of of Mark 3 here. And then the second question I'll ask is, what do his followers look like? What do his followers look like? First, who is the one we follow? 
Now we come off a scene in, in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, where Jesus healed a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Big controversy. And so the thing was, there, there's this man with a withered hand, and, and it would appear that the group called the Pharisees, the group who's seeking to preserve this Jewish way of life by strictly interpreting the law, this group of the Pharisees planted this handicapped man to try to trap Jesus, to see whether or not he would heal him. And Jesus sniffs out that this is a trap, and, and he heals him anyway. And he points out the, the dark irony of what they were doing. They were upset that Jesus was supposedly breaking the Sabbath. But in reality, what were they doing? On the Sabbath day, they themselves were plotting to kill a man. Who is the one who was breaking the Sabbath? So after this account, we, we, come, we pick it up in verse 7. It says, Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the Sea of Galilee, by now a familiar place in the Gospel of Mark. And usually Jesus withdrawing means some time of respite, right? He wants to get away. But we see a pattern too. Every time he wants a respite, he, he doesn't get one for very long. Get an interruption. Maybe if you have kids, you know what that's like. Um, he's withdrawing for a, a respite with his disciples. But he, he's interrupted by this multi-ethnic mob that forms to come and get healing from Jesus. And it's, I think it's remarkable that in an age, first century Israel, where there are no, where people don't have pieces of glass in their pockets that can give them news, that they can know where a man is and just form from all over the place to come and find Jesus. I think that's remarkable how fast news could spread even in that time. So we read of this crowd and Jesus' interaction with this crowd and it tells us several things about our Lord, about the one we follow. And just by the sheer diversity of the crowd, we see Jesus' heart for the nations. We see Jesus' heart for the nations. You look at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8 and you notice where the crowd comes from. People show up from Galilee and Judea that's pretty normal. It's pretty expected. Then they show up from Jerusalem, a little bit further out. Then they show up from Udemia. Uh, that, that would be 120 miles south of Galilee. The Old Testament, this was known as the region of Edom, is where the descendants of Esau uh, lived. Then it says people came from beyond the Jordan. This would be the region of Perea, the southeast of Galilee, where Jesus was. People came again from uh, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, familiar ones to the Old Testament. These would be northwest of Galilee, on the coast of the Mediterranean. So here we got this diverse crowd from this whole region surrounding Israel coming to see Jesus. This is clear. It's just a wide range of people. And it's a hint that the kingdom and rule of God is here, has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. And this was the plan from the beginning. A diverse nation that makes up God's people. So you keep your finger on Mark, if you're in the Bible, you flip back to Genesis chapter 12. I think that's on page 8 in the Pew Bible. You'll see at the beginning of the chapter is where God is calling Abram out from the land of, of Ur to come to the land of promise. And he's going to promise Abram that he will bless 
him and his descendants. And it's in chapter, uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, that last part of it, the rest of the Bible picks up on this theme. Right? It says, God tells Abram, in you, all the families or, or nations of the earth will be blessed. In you, in your descendants. So this blessing would come through Abram's descendants. And as scripture goes on, it's clear that this blessing would come through one particular descendant. The servant of the Lord, whom we read in Isaiah 49 earlier. This servant of the Lord who will be a light to all the nations and bring God's salvation throughout the earth. And Paul picks up in Galatians chapter 3 that this descendant of Abraham, this servant of the Lord, is none other than Jesus. He is the one in Ephesians 2 of whom he writes that it's through the redemption of by his blood that those who are once far off from the promises of God have been brought near. Jesus is the fulfillment of what's been, what people have been waiting for since Genesis 12. So friends, see, see what's here. This great crowd in Mark chapter 3, it reflects the grand plan of God of redeeming people from every nation. What's seen here is an echo of the great commission that Jesus is going to give his disciples in Matthew 28 to send them out to preach the gospel to every nation. What's seen here in that great crowd in Mark chapter 3 is a preview of the scene in heaven in Revelation 7 where those from every nation, tribe, and tongue will gather and worship the Lamb. What a great sight that will be. So we ask, do we have Jesus' heart for the nations? While some may support an America first foreign policy, the church of Jesus Christ is not America first. In fact, American Christians will be a tiny minority in heaven. Our God is the God of all the earth. The gospel that has saved us saves those from any nation. This is why we pray for the church around the world. This is why we pray for the gospel to advance around the world. This is why we support and send out missionaries to take the gospel around the world. And friends, it's hard to have Jesus' heart for the nations when you don't put the nations in front of you. Often our routines reinforce our natural tendency to, to focus on ourselves, to focus on our own preferences, to focus on our own needs. So just to get really practical, you know, a good way to do this, a good way to put the nations in front of you, to have Jesus' heart for the nations, is, is something like a, a resource like the Joshua Project. It's a, it's a great website. They'll give you an unreached people group of the day. That the people group I prayed for earlier from Burkina Faso, which is in Western Africa. It's a group of like 11,000 people there. But unreached means less than 2% are Christians. And unreached often means that there are no churches there, that there are no workers going there. How many churches we have here? The gospel is made well known here. That's why we raise up workers. That's why we pray to God that the gospel would advance among all the nations, that this small vision in Mark 3 of this great crowd from this wide region of lands, that God's vision of Revelation 7 would, would be fulfilled the gospel would be taken to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue. We pray for that to happen. 
Now, I could keep going on that point. That's just one small point. But what else does the crowd show us about Jesus? They show that Jesus is explosive and contagious. That he's explosive and contagious. Why did this crowd come to Jesus in the first place? Can you, can you see that in verse 8, the, the latter part of verse 8? They came to him because they heard what he was doing. They heard about him. I mean, do you know somebody who, who just can't stop talking about their kids? Right? Every time you see them, is, you know, they give you their t-ball stats. You know, they tell you what grades they got in math. and uh, Maybe they have that old school dad wallet that's got uh, 15 you know, pictures, little plastic things. It, it can kind of be annoying, but it's actually, it's actually really sweet because it shows you how much that parent loves and treasures their children. That's the nature of Jesus presented here, is that people who truly meet him and truly encounter him, they just can't help but talk about him. This is especially true for those who meet him for the first time. We saw that with, with Levi, the tax collector, or his, otherwise called Matthew. He sees Jesus, he meets Jesus for the first time. He says, Jesus, come meet my other tax collecting friends. We're going to have a party for you. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then you are the product of hearing about Jesus. Think about that. You are the product of, of hearing the gospel. Romans 10 says that God gives faith through hearing. That means he's chosen us, his followers, to make the gospel known and bring others to faith. What, what a privilege that is to be used in that mission. But that's a weighty privilege, and it's intimidating. If you feel like you have a hard time being motivated to do that, then pray for God to restore that, that initial joy of salvation. And, and keep coming to church. Keep being around God's people. Keep digging into his word. Those ordinary, simple actions will fan the flame for your passion for Christ. What else does the crowd show us? The crowd shows us that Jesus isn't deserving of opposition. This is a contrast from the first part of Mark 3. We're not, we don't see like a clear revival at this crowd. We don't see a clear repent and believe from this crowd. But we do see a marked difference between this crowd and the Pharisees in verse 6 who plotted to kill Jesus. So whereas the religious leaders of the day hated Jesus, most people in his time came to him. At least at the beginning. You know, if the excitement and the clamor show us anything, it, it shows us that something new has arrived. And most of the Jews at that day understood it. They understood that the Messianic age would be marked by healing of disease. And so they were excited. And they came to Jesus. Jesus isn't deserving of opposition. The crowd, what else do they show about Jesus? They, show, they give him opportunity to show his compassion and power. His compassion and power. You look at verse 9, and we find Jesus anticipating the over-eagerness of the crowd. That they wanted so badly to get near Jesus that they would crush him if he wasn't careful. Why he had a boat ready. Just like the boat is probably one of his disciples. 
So we see in our day, we know what this is like. Celebrities get such stature that people kind of lose their mind and lose all common sense and, and go ballistic over them. Uh, my dad tells a story of my Aunt Mary Jane seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show, and she's just screaming. Um, people lose their minds over this. Now, Jesus could have looked at this crowd, this mob that would have crushed him, and he could have just said, you people are nuts, and went away. But he doesn't do that. Time and again, the gospel writers recount the life of Jesus and, and they, see, they see his compassion. He sees the crowds and he has pity on them. All these people come to him and he has compassion. And you know the great thing about our Lord is? Is that he's, he, doesn't just, he doesn't have good intentions. That's not all he has. He doesn't just have compassion. He has power to back up that uh, compassion. So see Jesus' mercy here, that he has come, as he said in chapter 2, verse 17, to call sinners. But also see Jesus' power, that the one who calls sinners is able to heal sinners with a mere touch. And we ask, how do we come to him today? Well, Jesus and the rest of the Bible is clear. If you're going to come to him, if the sinners are going to come to him, if the sick are going to come to him, they must recognize that they are sinners, that they are sick. They must recognize their sin, and they must, the Bible says, repent from it, turn from it. And as they turn to him, they take their sin, and they place it on Jesus, who carries it, who takes their place, who lived the life that they didn't live, that we didn't live, who lived sinlessly and yet took our punishment on our behalf that we deserve for ourselves by dying on the cross. But Jesus did not stay in the grave. He rose again, vindicating that he has paid for our sin. So we come to Jesus today by repenting and believing. That's what, we, that's what we're going to commemorate later in the Lord's Supper Jesus' blood shed for us. Jesus' body broken for us. This is the gospel. But who is the one to whom the people come for healing? He's the Son of God. In verse 11, we see the demons falling before the conqueror. They are vanquished by the one who they know to be the Son of God. It's like that familiar verse in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, so the glory of God the Father. It's not a statement of belief. It's not a statement of love. It's an acknowledgement of an undeniable reality. We see here that Jesus would not be made known by demons. Jesus would not stir up people to make him a political revolutionary. But nonetheless, here, the reality is clear that Jesus is the second person of the triune God. That is who he is. And God reveals himself in his word as one God who exists in three persons. Each person being distinct, yet inseparably united with each other. 
the Son being eternally begotten from the Father, the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. This is the Trinity. So here, this Jesus who has always existed in his divine nature as God the Son is the one who in his incarnation came to earth, was born of a virgin, and took on human nature so that he is one person who subsists in two natures, divine and human. This is Jesus, the Son of God. This is the one we follow. The one who has a heart for the nations. The one who is explosive and contagious. The one who doesn't deserve opposition. The one who is compassionate and powerful. The Son of God. It is this Jesus, the one with this growing global appeal, who begins with 12. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman begs the question of why. Why did Jesus deliberately concentrate his life upon comparatively so few people? Had he not come to save the world? He could have had an immediate following of thousands if he wanted them. Isn't it disappointing that in the end he only had a few ragged disciples who followed him? Coleman continues. He says, Jesus was not trying to impress the crowd. He was ushering in the kingdom. That meant he needed men who could lead the multitudes. So this Jesus starts with 12. And what do these 12 show us about all the followers of Christ? Well, this is our second point. What do his followers look like? What do Jesus' followers look like? You look at verse 13, there's a change of scenery. Jesus goes up to the mountain, perhaps an often frequented mountain in Galilee, and there he calls 12 who would become the foundation of his church. He calls them 12 apostles. Literally those ones who are commissioned, and more specifically, those who are personally commissioned by Jesus and ones who are witnesses, eyewitnesses, to his resurrection, to the resurrected Christ. So just as a side note, this means that if apostles are personally commissioned by Jesus and that they are eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, that the office of apostle has ceased today. But it means that their authority is encapsulated in the New Testament so that the church is built on the foundation, as it says in Ephesians 2.20, on the apostles and the prophets. So Jesus calls 12 apostles. 12. That number wouldn't have gone unnoticed. It's like the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 apostles serve as a reminder that salvation is from the Jews. As Jesus says in John 4. But they also show that Israel fulfills its destiny by following Jesus. So here we see Jesus is calling, his commissioning, and even the apostles themselves. They show us something about all the followers of Jesus. So you look at verses 13 and 14. We see that becoming a follower of Jesus depends on Jesus. Becoming a follower depends on Jesus. What, what, is he, what do we mean by that? Well, who are the ones that, that come to Jesus here? 
They are those whom he desired. Those whom he desired, he called. Does it, does it say why he desired them? This is, this is his choice. This is his sovereign choice. And if we're honest, and if we have a biblical view of ourselves, we realize that none of us deserve to be chosen by God. No, while God works through our genuine decision, those whom he calls will come to him. And that's what happens here. Jesus calls and they come to him. This is what Jesus says in John 6, what we read earlier. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We see God choosing. In other places in Scripture, we see God choosing a man like Moses. How else would you explain how, how, how a little baby is preserved in the Nile River and how this random shepherd, who is a shepherd for 40 years, all of a sudden leads Israel out of Egypt, except for God's sovereign choice of that. We see God's sovereign choice in someone like Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, I formed you in your mother's womb. God chose Jeremiah to, to, to be his prophet. So then we see becoming a follower of Jesus depends on Jesus. This comes even clearer in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I don't know how much you know about dead people, but dead people can't help themselves. Dead people can't raise themselves. They can't make themselves alive. So God must do it. And God chooses to do it. Notice again in verse 14 where it says Jesus appointed 12. That literally says he made 12. He made them. Everything that was good in the, his disciples was a result of Jesus' work in them. Brothers and sisters, that's true of us. Everything good in us is a result of Christ's work in us. It means our entire salvation from beginning to end is all a result of God's grace and work in us. Becoming a follower of Jesus depends on Jesus. So we discover in, in, in Jesus' purpose of appointing the 12 that Jesus' followers, how do they follow him? They follow him by being with him. He says he calls them so that they might be with him. Have you ever noticed how if you're friends with someone for long enough that you use some of their phrases that they use? Uh, they, there have actually been studies done that couples who've been together for a long enough time, they actually begin to look like one another. It's the weirdest thing, but I actually think, I actually think it's kind of a beautiful thing that they, they see each other so much that they actually they imitate the same facial expressions. So then they develop kind of the same laugh marks, right? And they, they're with each other so much that without even thinking, without even thinking about it, they, they wear the, the same kind of stuff. I think that's, that's a, a beautiful picture and we ask, are, are we with Jesus so much that we're starting to look like him?
that our character is becoming more and more like him. So we ask, what's a part of your daily routine that reinforces this? Or maybe that undermines it. Do you know where else you are with Jesus? If you want to be like Jesus, you need to be with him. It's here. It's among his people. That's why the Bible says that the Bible is adamant not to neglect the gathering of the saints in large part because Jesus is especially present where his church is present, where his church is gathered in his name. So when we are with Jesus more and more, we become more and more like him and we grow to love him more and more. And it will reorient everything we do. It will become the backdrop of everything we do. So we could say like C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, S-U-N. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus' followers are with him, with him so much that they start to become like him and they see everything else against the backdrop of him and the gospel. We keep going in verse 14. We see that followers of Jesus, they are sent out to preach. You may say, hold on. Jesus is just talking to the apostles here. This is, just, this is just for the paid staff of the church sent out to preach. Well, yeah, but doesn't it say elsewhere in the Bible that all Christians are ambassadors for Christ? If you've believed the gospel, if you know the gospel, you're, you're qualified to do this. Believe it or not. And in God's providence, he has put different people in our lives, each one of us. You know know people that I don't know. I know people that you don't know. And God has called each one of us to be an ambassador for Christ to those people. And here, we're sent out to preach. That means we are an ambassador for Christ with our words. Notice next that we see Jesus gives the apostles authority to cast out demons. Now, this is a tricky one, isn't it? I think that the progression of the New Testament shows that this was a special gift for the early church that showed Christ's power, that vindicated that he had just arrived and that was on the scene. But this isn't without meaning for us. Don't get me wrong. Not only are we commissioned by the Lord to be his ambassador, sending out to preach, but we are commissioned by our Lord to send out and do. To do actions. So not only are we ambassadors first with our words, we are ambassadors second with our actions. This shows us followers are sent to act in Jesus' name. So last thing, let's look at the list of the 12 disciples. There are a bunch of lists of names in all scripture. And you talk about what we think would be wasted space is lists of names. Right? And we just kind of gloss over them. What on earth could we learn from a list of names? Let's look closer and see. When looking at the list of 12 as a whole, we discover that following Jesus doesn't require being elite. It doesn't require being elite. None of these men were in special rabbi schools. None of them were Ivy Leaguers. In fact, none of them were even that 
high of an influence in any sort of realm of life. Maybe a couple of them were middle class, but on the whole, they were regarded, in Acts 4 it says, as unlearned and ignorant. These are the men who are the foundation of the church. The point is that if it's ultimately Christ who shows his power through those who follow him, then he's able to use anybody. From a doctor like Martin Lloyd-Jones to a fisherman like Simon and Andrew and James and John. In fact, his power is made even more known the weaker that we are. So, wrapping up, from the 12, we learn that following Jesus brings transformation. We see the list of names there. See Peter. Peter puts his foot in his mouth all the time. He denied Christ three times. We see James and John, the sons of thunder. Which by the way, it was my coach pitch team name, the sons of thunder. That was really cool. James and John, the sons of thunder. At one point, they, they told Jesus, call down fire from heaven to burn up the city that just rejected you. And another time, they, they came to Jesus asking if they could sit next to him on his throne in heaven. We see in this group Matthew, who was a tax collector, a real slimy guy, a, a traitor to the, his nation of Israel. We see Simon, who is a zealot, a political radical. These are the men who became the foundation of the church. The men as a whole were thick-headed. They, they couldn't get their heads around who Jesus was. They couldn't understand. Yet these are the ones who were transformed by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, who were once scattered when Jesus died and was crucified, but then were filled with the Holy Spirit and preached the gospel in boldness, all of them being persecuted for proclaiming the gospel, most of them even being killed because they preached the gospel. So for us, those who follow Jesus today, substantial transformation may take time. It may take a while for you to see real big results. But you, but you know what? This same Jesus is the one who died for us just like he died for the disciples. And the same Spirit of God who fills them fills us. It's given us new hearts, new desires. So following Jesus brings transformation. A couple quick things. We see that following Jesus means Jesus's, we want Jesus' fame and not our own. Did you recognize most of the disciples on this list? Towards the end? Like, we don't talk about Thaddeus all the time. That means that most, it's a lesson for us. It's a lesson for the church. Most of us here, I would wager probably all of us here, will follow Jesus in obscurity. People aren't going to know who we are. You know what, friends? That's okay. That's okay. You know what? In heaven, in 10 billion years from now, 10 billion years, think of the 10 billion years, if we believe in eternal life, 10 billion years from now, we're not going to think, oh, man, if only no, more people knew how great of a follower of Jesus I was. But you know what will still be there 10 billion years from now? The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That will still be there. Amen. So following Jesus means wanting Jesus' fame and not our own. 
The list of 12 shows us that following Jesus reconciles those who would be enemies. I mentioned their names earlier. You see Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew was a tax collector, regarded as a traitor to his nation because he supported Rome and he worked for Rome and he robbed his people. And Simon the Zealot is someone who hated Rome. He was a political activist against Rome. This is a lesson again for the church. That in the church, what fundamentally unites us is not our race, is not our nationality, is not where we come from. Friends, it's not even our political opinions. What most fundamentally unites us is Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we see in the 12 disciples. Finally, we see from the 12 that following Jesus means knowing that he will accomplish his purposes often in spite of us. There's one name on this list that that sticks out among all of them. There's one name that's kind of a sore on what would be an otherwise really clean face. That's Judas Iscariot. And certainly Mark in the early church would have been tempted to erase Judas from history, to cover him up. Because, friends, how embarrassing, how embarrassing for the one who's supposed to be the Son of God to have a man man spend three years with him every day and then betray him. How embarrassing is that? And yet they include him. They include him in this list. And they even say, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, Because they knew when Jesus chose Judas, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And Jesus spent three years knowing that this man would betray him. But you know what the wisdom and power of God is? It's not that just Jesus accomplished his mission in spite of Judas' failure. But that he accomplished his mission, our redemption, even through Judas's evil and failure. What Judas meant for evil, God meant for good. So brothers and sisters, we follow the one who can't be thwarted, who will accomplish his purposes, who has already won the victory. The one we saw with great power and compassion and explosive influence is the Son of God who came to be to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. So for the rest of our lives, we strive to know a simple thing. Who we follow, and we strive to know how we can follow him more closely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bind our wandering hearts to thee and show us who Jesus is and show us, Lord, how we can follow him more closely. Help us to take your word and apply it to our hearts, to not walk away as the man in James, having seen ourselves in the mirror but forgetting what we just saw. But spirit, well up in us that we may love Jesus more and follow him more closely. It's in his name we pray, amen.